I was spending a lot of money on material and I was like, I have to make this more manageable. And I did take the concept of seeing everything as material. You know, I was fascinated with the secondhand store because it's kind of this, this Bermuda triangle of consumerism where, you know, things that are valued could be floating around in there. It's things that people didn't want that other people might want. And it's vice versa. It's just this weird place where anything is possible. So I always thought it was like a interesting concept in terms of like a place that existed because like you can get anything you want. Sometimes you can get something better than what you want. Sometimes it's all not for you. So it's just like an unusual place. So yeah, I just started going there a lot, started getting the pants. I mean, that was kind of tied into the fashion element, like of me being interested in fashion and material. So I thought it would be an okay pivot for me from my resident stuff. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 294th episode, Noah Kashiani joins me to talk all about his work and his upcoming show, Built Similarly, which opens here at Studio Break Gallery, Saturday, September 9th from 5 to 8 p.m. So please come join us to see an amazing show. In the episode, we, of course, break down Noah's background, his interests in art, how his thinking about consumer culture and traditional painting slowly evolved to incorporate more approaches, more medias, everything from found objects to using flocking, crystals, and most recently chroming various objects to explore ideas of late-stage capitalism. And we break all of that down coming up. Super exciting stuff. And of course, if you want to find out more about Noah, check out his website website noahkashiani.com and of course be sure to follow him on instagram if you're a recent listener or you haven't visited the website in a while please check out some of our archived artist episodes each of those episodes have images of the artist's artwork links to their websites you can listen right there on the website or you can subscribe in spotify or apple wherever your podcasts and of course it makes a great studio companion while you're working away in the studio getting some artists talking all about their work getting you excited about yours so once again head on over to studiobreak.com and check it out if you want to stay up to date with all things studio break the gallery you can like our facebook page you can find us on twitter slash x at studio break and of course on instagram at studio underscore break you can also subscribe to the newsletter which will share all sorts of announcements like our upcoming professional competition juried by jeff stevenson that's going to be opening in about october so stay tuned keep your eyes out for that with those announcements all wrapped let's dive right into this episode with noah kashiani stay tuned welcome to studio break noah kashiani how are you doing today doing great thank you for having me yeah, it's it's nice to be talking. Obviously, we're going to be talking all about your solo exhibition that's going to be at Studio Break Gallery September 9th from 5 to 8 p.m., built similarly. So very excited to talk about these new works that you've been making and, you know, featuring you here. So looking forward to all of it. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I love learning about people's backgrounds, and I'm sure I say that a thousand times, but are you from Ohio originally? Yeah, yeah. I'm from like the west side of Cleveland area. Okay. Yeah. Suburbs um, of West Side of Cleveland. Whole life, whole young adult life. Yeah. Well, till I went away to college and then I stayed in Ohio for four more years and went to Illinois. Okay. And then, you know, I'm especially just kind of curious, you know, what kind of stuff did you do when you were a kid? Were you somebody that kind of knew that they were creative at a young age? Were you 
I'm assuming skateboarding, spray painting. I was playing the violin. Okay, wow, cool. <laughs> and I was making a lot of plaster nativity scenes with my grandpa. So that was pretty crafty of me. Oh, wow. Year, year round, though. Like I was making Jesus and the three wise men, Mary, were multiple times a month painting, making plaster molds, painting them. So that was something in the family, like, like I say it, cause like, I mean, again, I just interviewed, uh, Aaron Radicke and her whole family's accountants, you know? So it's interesting to have somebody that's, I guess, teaching you how to make plaster molds and, and paint, you know? Right. Yeah. It was all sorts of weird, like DIY stuff. So once you get started, then you really just like, I remember making a lot of like chocolates too, like mm-hmm. putting them into molds. So like weird little activities was your family kind of like influencing like the creative side of this aside from your grandfather or were there i don't know like again i know that notoriously uh art people are not necessarily athletes and stuff like that but i'm always just kind of curious about more and more give us more yeah no i wasn't really particularly influenced to be an artist i pretty much did like a little bit of everything played sports and uh did music and I did take art classes and stuff, but I just feels like, you know, as a young kid, you're like making crafts one way or another, Mm -hmm. like those window things that were clear. They're like little stained glass plastic things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember those, but I would paint those like daily also and make bead lizards. (laughs) Just every little craft a kid could do or something. Was there like an art class or anything like in grade school, high school or something that started to shift that? And you're like, oh my gosh, what's watercolor or you know whatever it is no actually i got so wrapped up in music that i didn't really do art from like like i stopped in like eighth grade basically and didn't really come back around to like college when drawing was my first class yeah yeah and i was in choir yeah so between the two that was like i think that was most of my electives in high school yeah and you were always like performing and stuff like that and i don't know it was like an acapella choir and like traditional symphonic orchestra i don't even know if that's the right word but (laughs) just like a traditional orchestra so not always performing but sure like maybe like bi-quarterly um and so you know as you're growing up then how did you kind of make that switch was there did you literally land at college and then you had that experience where you took an art class again and or was it something else part of it was i didn't really know what i was going to be able to do for my life and i was like i'm pretty good at drawing this could work and then i think i had a art show when i sold a painting i was like oh this is easy mm-hmm. <laughs> sure just make a painting sell it i'll be a <laughs> successful artist in no time so you said you kind of like left it and came back to it was so that was at college specifically yeah i think i just was too busy with the other side of creative practice and was it something where you were really kind of interested in drawing when you started? I mean, especially because, you know, we kind of drawing is such a big umbrella. And then you think about what you get to normally do. And depending on what kind of classes, I mean, again, that could be very strict. That could be, you know, super open-ended. But what kind of drawing did you get into? Kind of all circles back, like when you figure out your identity as an artist. Like when I was a kid, I would draw many shoes. Mm-hmm. like sneakers and i would draw a lot of like rappers or like hip-hop artists mm-hmm. and then 
taking art classes, drawing was a nice vehicle to express myself, but I really didn't know about everything in contemporary art, let alone like where the overlap between mediums exists. I mean, I don't really even believe in mediums. It's all art to me, but you just have to understand the medium that you're looking at, of course. So I did a little sculpture, did a little ceramics, but I like did some painting. And like I mentioned, I like sold the painting. I probably put most of my effort into painting. So I was like, all right, like I'm a painter, but I really didn't know why I wanted to paint or what I was painting. So I eventually like circled back to, you know, the shoes and like the wrappers. And I was like, it's about like these materials. It's about these formal qualities and textures and the negative space around the object that interests me in it. And it was, it's not really something I could convey with painting. So I guess the drawing was just, yeah, it really was just an umbrella, mm-hmm. but like, you know, it kind of circled back to like how I figured out what I would make now. Sure. Sure. Were there artists that you started getting exposed to, to kind of change the way that you thought about what drawing or art or anything could be? So I remember in undergrad, I really latched on to uh, Hans Hoffman mm-hmm. as a painter. And I was like, that's that's me right there. We'll just mm-hmm. paint like that. Should be good. But I mean, maybe to a normal person, I had a decent knowledge of art history scope. And by decent, I mean, like, could maybe name a few time periods. Mm-hmm. But it was a grain of sand compared to you know what was actually out there so i didn't really have any knowledge of contemporary art at that time i went to a small liberal arts school so you know i had talented professors but i just didn't investigate the contemporary art world myself Mm -hmm. and and what what did the work look like i guess you know you kind of described kind of at some point being interested in shoes, but you're also bringing up Hans Hoffman. I'd imagine, you know, color and, you know, the, the painting process becomes maybe a little bit important to you and, and material. I mean, I hadn't really came back to the material at, mm-hmm. yeah, at that point. They were just like kind of looser color field ish zombie formalism type mm-hmm. um, abstract paintings. I mean, that was what I did towards the end when I got my own freedom. But I feel like when I was doing like portraits, that was when I got a lot of satisfaction, like using these like very painterly strokes to portray people. I think I mostly enjoy portraits, but somehow I was like, I'm an abstract painter. I don't know how it happened. (laughs) Well, it's, it's an interesting evolution, you know, where you're somebody that learned those skills. I was one of those. Uh, that did not learn those skills. It was like, oh, this is hard. I'm going to, I can do abstraction though. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of right. cool to have that, that skill set. you know, on a side note too, obviously we, we teach together. So, you know, that's how we met and kind of know each other. And it seems like, you know, those skills that you learned are very much like imbued in your classes and your student work, which always looks really, really tight. So it's interesting to have those those muscles to flex and then obviously then to to kind of shift your interest into something that maybe matters to you a little bit more what what kind of things you know were you making towards the end of that did you have like a capstone they make you write a paper and an artist statement and all that good stuff that was like my thesis the abstract paintings i remember i made like five like 24 by 48 or something like that and they were just 
honestly, they were just terrible, awful. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my. Were they were they were they just loose and like there's no like concept behind them? Because I say that because like your work now obviously seems so uh, driven by some of those those things and, and choices. So I can't you know I'm trying to get an idea of then what these loose abstract paintings might look like at the time. Oh, uh, I could maybe dig one up and find one for you, but <laughs> one of them out of the five was actually really good. And then the other four were absolutely trash. The one I sold. Okay. <laughs> but really bad. A lot of no, no, de- no depth. And I just like really had no medium specificity. Like I was just using acrylic and I wasn't really getting the most out of the acrylic when I should have been using oil. I just didn't really know my paints and mediums and things at the time. Yeah. Well, and so, so what happened after graduation then? Did you immediately go, I got to go to graduate school? It looks like there's a little bit of a gap. So maybe there was some life experience in there or? No, I mean, I actually had intentions to get my master's. I wanted to, I was like, would have been content with being a, you know, part-time teacher or whatever it may be, or at the time that sounded like a good idea. <laughs> so I waited one year uh, to kind of figure out where I wanted to go. And then I landed on NIU. Mm-hmm. But between then, I was just like working and making some paintings in my apartment because I didn't really have a portfolio ready for like applications. I, I didn't really have a plan when I graduated. Basically, like when I was graduating, I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. So it was too late to, you know, go straight into anything. Well, again, I don't know that I have wonderful advice to give anybody, but it took a couple of years off. And it seems like a good time to kind of find your element. You know, there's nobody second guessing, you know, why you're making these decisions. But then if you're finding time to to paint while you're, you know, you kind of have these side gigs where you're like, oh, man, like nobody, nobody cares about my art degree. And at the same time, you're like trying to channel it and still do stuff with it. So it's. I don't know. For me, I'm just like, that's a great time to, to figure yourself out and, and make work on a dining room table and, you know, <laughs> your 300 square foot apartment. <laughs> oh yeah. I think in hindsight, I would have obviously would have done a few things uh, differently. Like I think I would have waited longer actually, like you were saying, and like mm-hmm. really sorted things up. I think I was just like, all right, let's get through, get ourselves a job. Like I didn't even understand like what being an artist was and like what, went into being an artist. So I was just like, I'll walk straight through. Yeah. Well, and so how did you land on um, NIU? I, I say this because like, again, it's such a weird thing trying to decide where to go to schools. People are like, oh, I went here or this school is really good. You show up to a place that's supposed to be awesome. And then you're like, huh? Like, this is weird. Um, but how did you, how did you wind up there? Uh, someone actually at my school in Ohio knew somebody on faculty there and would like just recommend it i mean i was looking at a few other places mm-hmm. like kent state they've got an okr program and then like savannah and georgia and there was no really rhyme or reason for any of these places i think kent just because it was here and mm-hmm. iu because somebody told me about it and savannah just because i was maybe interested in changing climates i mean i really was not in tune with what was like programs or like prestige or what would benefit me the most or whatever. I was just, like I said, I was just like trying to get through there. Yeah. Well, and I guess I'm curious, like if you were kind of going through this transition towards the end and in terms of like, 
you know, becoming an abstract painter? Is that what you kind of built up a portfolio then you're, you're in and you're at NIU and they're like, why are you doing this? this you're a modernist. Go back, go back in time, sir. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I built it on. A lot of non-representational stuff. I don't know if they were all in the same vein of that senior portfolio that I did, mm-hmm. but none of it was, yeah, observational or anything. So yeah, I got there and like, they were just kind of, you know, prodding me a little bit. Like they were very helpful, really, again, really strong viewpoints from the faculty, but like, you know, you're ultimately like, nobody can really tell you what's going on anyways. You kind of just have to like trial and error. And so, yeah, I think it's hard to not find a fit, you know? I, I say that because like, as I'm reflecting on this and this is why I love doing this is, you know, I'm thinking back to my experiences and like, it wasn't like there was a specific person that I went here to study with, but then you kind of find these people that you resonate with or, you know, start making you think about your work differently. Were there any kind of classes that jump out to you or experiences where you're like, oh damn, like this is, this is changing everything. Yeah. Cause I think I was just so stuck on like, all right, I'm a painter we're making some paintings with paint, oil paint, whatever it may be. Like, I didn't really understand how there was no rules. I mean, except for the laws of nature, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think it was really when I started taking printmaking because I started like mixing collages in with my paintings and they were much better visually. All of a sudden Mm -hmm. they started looking pretty good. I was like, well, you know, we can maybe have some, traction here with these so-called paintings but i went away actually after that to a residency at cal arts and that was a huge point where my thinking shifted that was for sure when i completely departed from painting i mean i just saw so much weird stuff out there and like you know that was probably my aha moment uh i think basically because you see all these mediums you see all these contemporary art galleries you really understand where you can fall on the spectrum And when you see what people are doing, I think that the more art you see, you know, obviously the better off you are, but like, that's like the good and the bad weird, like some performance art where somebody was going around and tapping everybody in the audience's head and making a different pitch. And I was like, all right, they're doing this. I'm making some abstract paintings. We're on the same page, but like we are, but we're not Mm -hmm. between that and everything else that falls within, you know, contemporary art, you can kind of focus your lens a little bit. Well, so, so when was that then? When did you go to CalArts? Was that during graduate school or after graduate school? Uh, it was between my second and third year, the summer. Wow, that's a really cool idea just because like you get kind of caught up into making. I saw people that like, you know, they're going to be like, I'm doing the same thing the whole way through, you know, and actually a decent friend, um, you know, like radically changed in the like last year. It was just like, boom. Mm-hmm. You know, was it one of those kind of moments? Because, like, again, you see your work now and it's just like there's so much material explored. You know, like I can still see painting influences, but I wouldn't necessarily think of it, obviously, as being maybe the same. So that's the thing is once I did the printmaking, I understood that you don't have to be painting or printmaking. You can mix mediums. You can do whatever you want. Because I remember my printmaking professor was like, is it okay if I like cut these up? Like, does that not make it a print anymore? And he kind of like laughed at me. He's like, what are you talking about? Like you can do whatever you want. Like Mm -hmm. you can make anything with anything. And I was like, okay, understood. So I went from basically collage to, you know, mixing some resin in there. I was maybe like coating them to have like a, 
shiny glaze or something like that. I forget where the resin exactly came into play. I took the resin to CalArts, did like one or two paintings. Actually, no, I think the resin actually started in CalArts now that I'm looking back on it. Because I remember I was collaging at first and I started with the painting. I made some nice collages actually and coated them with resin. They're like, these are the most interesting thing you've ever done. And I was like, okay, well, that's your opinion. <laughs> it gave it materiality, you know, it pushed the it pushed the, you know, boundaries of painting a little bit. And then so resin led me to start making pumps of resin. And then from there, I was kind of just off and running. Yeah. Well, and again, too, as we're diving into work, at least I think we're going to be diving into work soon. I want to remind people they can, you know, check all of that out. It's noakashiani.com. And then also uh, the same goes for Instagram. So be sure to give a follow there and you can kind of see, you know, current work and certainly on the website, you know, some, uh, some of the older work you know, as you're kind of merging through there to kind of get an idea of, of what, you know, is going on in this uh, studio practice. Was there like a, again, like a big conceptual idea then for the thesis exhibition? That's really kind of where I'm still in the vein umbrella of today, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know, I started with these elements of commercialism and materialism, and I was looking at high fashion and sneakers a lot and architecture and still some colorist ideologies not from a painting standpoint but like really emphasis on color theory mm -hmm. um, and just how my works interact with each other that was pretty much when i started to hone in a little bit on what i'm making or why and, and was that something that you do in terms of like writing are you kind of like writing out ideas or are you kind of then kind of like gathering visual research I say it because like somebody will read a book of poems and that'll be a source material, you know, in some sort of way or reflection. Yeah, anything. I'll take a lot of notes. I'll just write like phrases from either TV shows or instances or I'm talking with my friends or songs. And I often save pictures. I save a lot of photographs from the Internet, sometimes from Instagram. Um, a lot of when I'm just looking up random artists, I'll go down like rabbit holes like one will lead me to another and then I'll be, you know, on Google images, like clicking on an image related to an image. Then, you know, somehow you end up in a place. Well, I'd imagine too, like that experience that you're talking about being at CalArts too, you can kind of see that there's got to be such a gigantic range and, you know, like I've always been kind of most influenced. So that's super kind of interesting, but was there like a, a specific amount of pieces? I mean, were you kind of you know, dealing mostly then with kind of using different materials then for this, this thesis exhibition, you know, I guess I'm looking for a bridge, especially into like, you know, how we're, we're getting to some of the more material explorations. And then also, you know, cause you mentioned it in your artist statement, you, you know, talk about, um, you know, essentially like state capitalism, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I was really trying to emphasize some objects that were purchased or alluding to them being like, something with monetary value or something that's treasured or precious essentially. So a lot of my pieces in that show either had like chains and a lock on them kind of like drooped over them as if it's being protected or on the other end of the spectrum, like a chain as a jewelry. And then I remember something that I was super proud of. I made a, like one of those security devices that, if you're ever at like, I don't know, this is the first example I can think of if you're at Lowe's and like mm -hmm. maybe the sander in the box has like 
it looks like a little plastic disc on it and then it's got wires coming from all angles and it's got it wrapped up. So I like made one of those out of a smoke alarm and spray painted it and put some wires on it. And I was like, wow, I can really make something interesting that references something that doesn't mean anything out of this like weird stuff that I bought. I've started beginning very inspired whenever time I went to Lowe's or Home Depot, I was like, oh, this could be in a painting or this could be in a painting. But I forgot like one of the most influential artists or like when I saw them was, was like definitely pivotal for my jumping off. I forgot to mention, cause when I think about me implementing these, you know, chains or security devices into a painting, uh, I was looking at like Jessica Stockholder who seems to be like, for me, one of the most obvious artists who, you know, makes painting with objects or with things or the combination of both. So seeing art like that too, and understanding like that's a place for an artist made me feel better about what I was doing too. Cause sometimes you're like, is this completely off the wall? But it's, you know, the more mature you get with your practice, you're like, it's all, it's all good stuff here. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting too, because like the work from like, maybe a little bit before that, like the more collage based work, you know, still has a great sensibility about it, color. But then again, the way that you start kind of like stacking, structuring things, you know, there's zip ties in some pieces. And then I guess all of these resin components, like there's, there's this piece called um, the first bust down. Mm-hmm. And again, that one seems really pretty interesting. Obviously we've got some things that are much more identifiable as like chain locks, et cetera. But then there's all of this color kind of going on behind it. And then it looks like too, there's like a number of these that are just kind of like resin based that look like, I don't know, really fun studio debris, or (laughs) I don't know, like if a construction website got hit with color or something, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit about, about that, that piece in particular, just because again, I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more and and maybe, you know, you can kind of walk some listeners into, into maybe the process a little bit. Sure. I was fascinated with holographic stuff just because it was shiny. Another thing that like led directly into the whole uh, consumerist thing. It's like, I see this thing shiny. I want it. It's giving it value when in reality it's like some crappy plastic. But Mm -hmm. I remember being at office max and there was some holographic folders and I bought a bunch of them and made a painting out of them. And it was amazing. The painting was great at one point and then I overworked it and it turned like awful. I just, I didn't know it was amazing at the time, but I had these progress photos. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this was and it's prime. And I just like, cause it was, you know, of course still abstract. So I overworked it. So I was like, let that go to rest. And then it resurfaced because I was like at party city and they had some holographic cellophane. And I was like, oh, I could probably coat this in resin and it would take any shape I wanted it to make. So Basically what you're looking at is that holographic cellophane that goes in like a birthday bag or something. Mm -hmm. And it's just draped over a bunch of paint cans. So you can see like the circular forms. That's like the top of like a gallon of paint and like a bunch, just like I just made some sort of random shape so that it could have some texture popping out of there. So I just draped a bunch of those sheets coated in resin and it left me with this, um, you know, waving form of rainbow colors, but I like squeezed it into the, the stretcher that I had made, you know? So it was like confining the chaos of these 
crazy shapes, but it's still squeezed into a painting. Well, and it's interesting though, too, because obviously then, you know, like the collage works, you're kind of like layering all these different layers and combining things, you know, in this context, it's much more physical, you know, they're coming off the wall, they're, they're getting sculptural. Was that something that came easy? Like in terms of like, you just, you know, kind of like before kind of alluding to, you know, like there's no rules, you know? So maybe like kind of, as you start to come together, it's like, wow, this is, this is where it's at, you know, cause it doesn't have to kind of stick to this you know, just flat format. Yeah, I think maybe it's related to my youth and growing up and basically like jerry-rigging everything. Mm-hmm. Somehow making something work in my garage or building this slip and slide that I had to like, you know, manipulate and tie a bunch of hoses around from this block or whatever it may be. So I like the idea of making something that seems not possible working. Mm-hmm. I like the the physicality of actually structuring something and kind of using my motor skills to finesse the materials. I mean, of course you're doing that painting and drawing too, but I guess I just having the object already exist felt like it saved me time when I'm done drawing it. <laughs> well, and it's interesting too, because like aside from those pieces, you know, there are these I don't know if they're designer pants, but, you know, there's a piece called Shameful Company, which, again, looks like there's a variety of different pants that are kind of like sewn together. And again, I don't know if that's where you're necessarily going with, but I immediately start thinking about like, um, you know, the way that people buy like used Levi's for hundreds of dollars or something is some weird commodity or, you know, I'm certainly not a fashionista, but I know that there's a whole industry about all of this stuff. But did you kind of just start seeing everything then as like a potential material? Like you were saying, you know, you go to Home Depot. Is it like I'm going in my closet or going to a Goodwill store? And it's like, wow, this could be cool. Part of it was I was spending a lot of money on material. And I was like, I have to make this more manageable. And I did take the concept of seeing everything as material. But, I, you know, I was fascinated with thrift store, the secondhand store, because it's kind of this, this Bermuda Triangle of consumerism where, you know, things that are valued could be floating around in there at a small price. Like some, it's things that people didn't want that other people might want and it's vice versa. It's just this weird place where anything is possible. So I always thought it was like a interesting concept in terms of like a place that existed because like you can get anything you want. Sometimes you can get something better than what you want. Sometimes it's all not for you. So it's just like an unusual place. So yeah, I just started going there a lot, started getting the pants. I mean, that was kind of tied into the fashion element, like of me being interested in fashion and material. So I thought it would be an okay pivot for me from my resin and stuff. And so I started working with those a bit. And then the thrift store really became um, a focal point for me because after grad school, money was a bit of an issue. So I was trying to have accessible, cheap materials. So I really started going to thrift store like daily um, and just fishing for anything that I thought was interesting, regardless of what it may be. Yeah. And it's like that year 2020 seems like such a breakout in terms of figuring some of that stuff out. The works become, you know, in some cases very sculptural, but it's interesting because like I start seeing these piles of different 
I don't know, they look like ski jackets and ski gloves that are all kind of like brightly kind of colored, but you kind of think about them the same way that you would like a, an abstracted painting. So there's still kind of qualities like that. Was it hard to find a place to kind of do all this and, and work without having a, a studio or did you like share a space or? I shared a space with five artists. We were in a building across from Skylark and like the lower west side. Mm-hmm. And I found them on Chicago Artists Coalition. I didn't know any of them. Cool people. It was up like, you know, six stories. So like a lot of my process was spray painting and like sometimes using resin. So it wasn't really a good situation for that. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do a lot there. Somehow I was mostly dodging them, but it did become problematic just in terms of the space and what I was doing. But most of my practice felt like it was, you know, at the thrift store. Like that's when it started. That's when the artwork started, you know, and it felt like very much that when I was in there, I had to get to like a certain place mentally to really be able to be interested. You got to be relaxed and be open-minded because sometimes you'll run and in the same way, even if you're shopping for clothes, you you might see a weird material and then you're like, you just throw it back and never think of it again. But then you look at it for a few seconds, you're like, this could make a nice translucent window for my painting or whatever it may be. Yeah. I I think the interesting thing for me is especially like there's an aspect of the multiple that starts to kind of pop up in the work where it's like, you're Mm -hmm. finding a bunch of gloves or you know whatever it is handbags it's interesting to kind of get into that process of like or at least maybe for me thinking about you in this you know (laughs) like a resale store and it's like wow look at this you know box of gloves like what could i do with this or you know whatever it is so the gloves is actually different i just have a million (laughs) pairs of winter gloves like that because just over the years, you know, living in the Midwest, it's cold. So like, you know, some weird store by my house in Cleveland has like those 90s ski gloves, you know, maybe 99 cents. So over the past five, 10 years, I've got, you know, 20, 30 pairs. I lose one on each hand. So what am I do with these leftover gloves? So that was the gloves, but everything else was sourced pretty much from the thrift store. A few, maybe I bought a few gloves too, but you know, kind of worked with what I got sometimes as well. But yeah, I would be in there rummaging through the belts and just walking out with 20 or 30. I still have belts in my <laughs> studio that I can't throw away because maybe I'll use them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm kind of curious then. So when did you start, I guess, using like the like the crystalline stuff to kind of encrust some of these sculptures? Was that like specifically like a, a shift in the work? And I, I love the way that it kind of reminds me of like, something that would be like found in the earth. I don't know if that's an intention or like a good reading at all, but I don't know. I start thinking about like, I don't know if somebody was like hacking into a rock or something and they start kind of noticing this, you know, fragment of a glove that's got all these kind of like crystals growing over it. Like it's something that's old. I don't know. My practice continues to come actually full circle, but I started covering some of my belts and this flocking material, nylon fibers. It's what would be found in a jewelry box or like on the dash of like an old muscle car or something. It looks Mm -hmm. like it's like suede or like it looks like it's felt, but it's like a little bit more refined and takes forms better. So I started doing that because I wanted to like kind of limit the chaos of all the colors. I was like kind of feeling very 
monochromatic at the time or even less just a single hue no tints or shades whatever it may be but use that on these crappy objects that i found because it was like i can hide these dirty stained unwanted things from the thrift store like i'm taking something that has all these blemishes and covering it up and all of a sudden it looks like it's a fancy object and it looked like you know suede so i was like okay that was kind of my MO is take this unwanted discarded stuff. And there's a whole, whole another layer to the whole discarded stuff and thrift store um, and all the things that exist and how much waste goes to all, into all the, you know, clothing industries that would lead me into my next genre here. Then I was like, okay, how else can I make things look super luxurious? And I was like, I could coat, coat them in crystals. So I actually bought, maybe $150 worth of like crystal jewelry from the thrift store. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to spend at the thrift store. (laughs) So it was a ton of crystal jewelry. And I started gluing them on individually, like ripping them apart, ripping the necklaces apart, ripping the brooches apart and like ripping all the earrings apart and gluing them onto like these objects that I created. And it just wasn't sustainable because one, it was expensive. I mean, there's probably a better way to source these fake gems, but I've just, you know, one of them now and they're accessible. So I just did it there. I'm sure you can buy a giant bag from, you know, Amazon, but that takes the, the fun out of everything. For months, I was trying to figure out a way to make everything crystal. And I had went back and forth with a few ideas and the holidays are around. I remember there was actually a big blizzard. I couldn't get to my studio and the holidays are around. I was watching a video on how to make a Christmas ornament with a pipe cleaner and turn it into crystals. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. And I did a little research and the pipe cleaner was nylon. I'm like, Oh, that's funny. Cause this flocking powder is nylon. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm just going to boil one of these pieces that I made and see what happens. And then the crystals came out and I was like, yeah, it works. So ran with that for probably about a year and a half. There was, a few uh, laws of nature issues at first because they're salt crystals with water in them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be some bumps in the road anytime you're venturing into new territory. So I was able to sort that out. But the biggest issue with that was I had to boil an enormous pot of water. Mm-hmm. So it kept getting bigger and bigger, and the process became pretty tricky because in the middle of the winter, when the wind's blowing, and I needed a giant flame to heat up this huge drum of water. It was very difficult. So I do it seasonally now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear that process for sure. You know, there's so much that's removed, obviously, when you're seeing something in the context of a space and you have no idea how it came to be. Um, and it's interesting, too, because like there's a another piece that I believe is based off of like blood if i'm not mistaken and it's kind of like gritted out maybe maybe talk about that one a little bit i think it's called blood donor and that's um all discarded like vampire teeth (laughs) from halloween and i became very interested in like color schemes because i shifted from this monochromatic to like somewhat color schemes and I've always been a huge fan of Anne Truitt, but I forgot about her for years. And then I went to Marfa for a show 
and my love for minimalism kind of resurfaced. I mean, in many ways, it's very interesting. And like, in many ways, my work is about the space and how the artworks interact with each other mm-hmm. and the walls around and everything and the people in it. So that's really, you know, how I view minimalism aside from one of the main facets, you know, removing the hand or whatever it may be. But like my biggest takeaway is how these objects interact with what's around them. That's kind of why they're in the grid one. So I was, you know, digging a little bit more into minimalism and sure came back up and I kept seeing her work when I was art handling previously and it was all kind of rushing back. And I was like, you know what, those, those colors that she uses are actually incredible. So I became, you know, very interested in the combinations of these subtle, you know, toned down colors or these light tints of colors and like how they can be very interesting just based off one or two, you know, psychological responses. But that piece is the first real color scheme I tried to create with the crystals. I had several different batches going at once and it became very chaotic. Granted, that was more manageable because they're smaller, but a lot of math involved with that. And because actually the volume of the crystals increases with each row, so the first one has none, second one has a little, growing more and more to the bottom row, which has the most robust crystals. So each amount of color in each one was very calculated, as well as the amount of materials for growing the crystals, because I was trying to have them, each row have you know bigger and bigger ones, because the time you do it, the amount of sodium borate you put in, how hot the water is, how quickly you cool it off, all these factors contribute to the size of the crystals. Yeah. Super interesting. When did you like, I guess, start incorporating other objects in terms of like masks? And um, I know, again, you were just talking about vampire teeth, so can't help but see some correlation with, you know, the, the masks that start popping up in some pieces and and different works. Sure. So I was very interested in the thrift store. Like I mentioned, (laughs) you know, the objects that you find there, you can find some pretty, weird things and got me thinking about like discarded objects, you know, and like Halloween jumped out to me because I kept seeing Halloween stuff. Meanwhile, I had a conversation with someone months beforehand, before I started using any Halloween stuff. I had this conversation. I was talking about how, you know, my work is related to late stage capitalism and how talking about purple ketchup, you know, we've gotten so far away from, Mm -hmm the important things that we're making ketchup that's purple just for the the sake of doing whatever we can. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, you know, anything ridiculous to, to make a buck or whatever. And we're talking about spirit Halloween and how during COVID the lines were like super long Mm -hmm. and it was like kind of a prime example of late stage capitalism when these people are, waiting in line to risk their lives hypothetically. I mean, we didn't know what was going on with COVID at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, This was like October, 2020. So it was still pretty fresh. People, it was just funny because people were waiting in this long line. You know, we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to go out, not supposed to interact with people, but that yet give a cue at the Halloween store to buy something that's a one-time use wearing a mask to go buy another mask, but some people won't even wear the mask. It's just like this hilarious situation 
to me, I was like, huh, it's like funny because the scary stuff at a Halloween store is just like the whole thing's like a scary situation. So I really got like latched on the idea of Halloween being this super serious but ironic situation. Like I love Halloween, don't get me wrong. And I got nothing against Spirit Halloween, which is the situation itself was just so bizarre in regards to human nature. So I started dealing with some Halloween materials because I was like, I feel like there's a little bit more content here for me. And I like kind of the eerie or like creepy silliness of some of the items. So I guess I did a little research for you. And um, the budget spent on Halloween was like, it's in the billions. It's like $9 billion. This was in 2019. That's a lot, but I mean, it's just like anything else. There's probably, you know, billions of dollars in Easter candy or whatever it may be. But the point being that since Halloween, most of the stuff is a one-time discard use. That's why so many of the things are much more readily available. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I use eBay for some stuff because at this point, there's certain things that I seek out and want, and they're not always at the tip of my fingers, but you know, many things had jumped out to me, like the fake spider webs. I used a lot of that. You can't reuse that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just like a fiber, but just still waste nonetheless. And all these like things that turn up like fangs and costumes. So that's kind of where I came into the Halloween element. And then the fangs just seemed like an obvious one to me because they were just like the most crappy object there. <laughs> And an iconic Halloween thing. Well, and it's interesting because it's like, again, it's like a recognized, you know, giant um, holiday, if you will. But it's like, again, everybody kind of pretends to be somebody that are not. They kind of bring up this idea of masks. And again, certainly when you start digging into like the way things work, you know, you start realizing there's, you know, like even like a perception of the way that a company will try to, you know, make it seem like they're environmentalists to, you know, take away from the fact that maybe you know endless uh gas and oil is is not sustainable or or something like that or even just the materials i guess in terms of some of the things that you're making them with and so you know like these are finding their way into into the sculptures and you know again there's there's some that are really kind of fun there's like a conglomerate one called not that good with people where it looks like there's a bunch of these different kind of uh thematic things kind of coming together as like a collage that was like in my earlier stage of starting with this Halloween stuff and it wasn't super concise mm-hmm. exactly what I wanted to do with the objects, but I just bought a ton of masks and, you know, again, unifying them with something that makes them look nicer. So I'm still using the flocking, still using the crystals to some extent. So that was just an easy situation because it's not like foolproof, you know, but it's like, all right, the one's a Hillary Clinton face, the one's a horse or the one's a unicorn. The one is a baseball man. Like right. before I, co- before I change their color, it looks like, you know, complete chaos because it's just a million different latex, purple, green, white, flushed skin color, whatever it may be. Well, and obviously like in the, in the more current work, something that's super recognizable is the scream mask, you know? And it's weird. I'm getting advertised about this all the time. Maybe it's because I've been looking at your work and saying scream out <laughs> loud. But um, but it's, again, interesting because you've also kind of taken to, I guess, some more current works. You've been using like a a coating of like 
metal, but like maybe maybe talk about that a little bit. Where where did that start happening? And because I was talking about taking some crappy stuff and making it appear nice. I did the flocking. I did the crystals. I was like, what? What else? And I mean, I have you know different lists and ideas, and of course, chroming them out was always one, and it wasn't really feasible. I mean, I had made a few works and sprayed them with like the spray paint from AutoZone because they have like a special chrome coat that you do first. And then like they have like the the candy paint, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really like look that legit. I mean, it still looked kind of cool, but it wasn't quite doing the effect material wise that I wanted because it wasn't about, you know, again, like limited palette, but you let the texture and forms, you know, kind of take the movement and do the speaking. And I was talking with somebody, I was mentioning that idea and they were kind of at my studio looking at my artwork and they're like, you know, I used to work for this company. We used to uh, like chrome stuff out because it was like a commercial building company where they'd make like props quickly or something or whatever it may be. And so they told me about this company that exists that actually can chrome out anything. And it's because they use a specific chemical process where the sterling silver form fits around the object. And then they're able to basically turn anything into chrome. There's some chemistry involved. I'm not exactly sure. So I was like, all right, this looks cool. And actually they do like football helmets for college football teams. Like if you've ever seen any of those metallic helmets that look like they're metal, of course they're Mm -hmm. not metal, but that's the same material. So I was looking into it. How could I do it? I talk, I was going back and forth with them for about a month. And they're like, look, you can bring it to Florida or California. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare because my stuff was like kind of big and cumbersome to begin with. And so eventually they're like, oh, actually, we have a place in Indianapolis, um, which is kind of local. If you think about the terms of, you know, how many of these places exist. At first, I looked into like finding the, the materials to do it. It's not possible. $20,000 for an experiment. I couldn't swing it. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was like, all right, they, they can do it for me if I just take this stuff there. And it still wasn't very cheap. And then once you consider shipping and everything, it was like, this is going to be an enormous undertaking. But I was able to touch down with these people in Indianapolis and I've just been driving back and forth ever since. Maybe tease us a little bit with this, uh, this show that's going to be opening September 9th here at Studio Break. So it's going to be a combination of all three of those materials. Maybe I also used a lot of rubber recently, along with making the object look nicer. It's about like kind of making the object imperishable, I should say. Mm-hmm. It's more than making it appear like it's nice. It's making it look like it could last through time. You know, like if I'm going to have this crummy five cent object or not five cent, I mean, <laughs> you know, we'll say five dollars. 50 cent, maybe. Forgot. I forgot. I'm not. Yeah, I forgot. It's not 1998. <laughs> but let's say the object, you know, can actually withstand the test of time and it's going to stay here. You know, it's not going to be waste, which is kind of like, again, this ironic loophole of like, why do we need to make a permanent, you know, ghost, like a she ghost? Like, that doesn't need to be here forever. But it's, you know, it's a weird place I've reached in my practice, but it'll be a combination of, you know, a bunch of different materials. There'll be some chrome, some flocking, some rubber, maybe some crystals, maybe not. I don't know. Well, right on, you know, um, it's exciting just cause like, again, I know as we've been kind of talking to the past couple of months, it seems like you've been, you know, just really hitting it in the studio and 
and staying super productive and all the while teaching and, and I think traveling a little bit. So, you know, it's interesting to kind of catch that wave of creativity, but you know, like it's going to be really exciting. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited about this exhibition. I could say excited a few more times there, but it'll, it'll be pretty great to see all these, you know, in that space. And I'm assuming again, that's kind of like any, any artist, you know, that's kind of a treat to kind of get it out of, you know, a sculpture leaning next to another sculpture or an object or a painting, whatever you want to, you know, describe it as or whatever the work is and kind of get it into a space where there's more room for it. You know, you start seeing the way these things start collaborating and and communicating. So aside from that, are there other big upcoming plans in the in the near future, exhibitions, anything like that? Uh, the week before, actually, I will be in a three-person show at Heaven Gallery. Uh, open September 1st with two other artists. So that's going to be a good one as well. There's going to be more of the same types of work. So between the two, actually, you know, if you like one, it'd be nice to see them both because they will all be related. So a busy week, busy two weekends for all of you folks. <laughs> well, good good for you, right? I mean, again, you know, a strike while the iron's hot, as, as they say. So, well, yeah, again, you know, I would just encourage everybody, you know, make sure that you, you know, check out Noah's website and, and, and follow on Instagram. That's Noah Kashiani. And again, noahkashiani.com, Instagram, say hello, follow the work. And, you know, again, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with me today about your work and excited about everything. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been fun. Thanks once again to Noah for joining me. Please come to our opening for Built Similarly, a solo exhibition by Noah Kashiani. It opens Saturday, September 9th from 5 to 8 p.m. in West Chicago. If you need to know how to get here, the easiest way is hit up that link tree as it'll have it address with a google map very easy and of course you can also check out other podcasts as well as other shows that we've had so once again hit up that link tree for more information and join us saturday september 9th from 5 to 8 p.m if you do want to check out any other work you can visit noah kashiani or follow him on instagram at noah kashiani and that way you stay up to date with things going on in the studio new pieces lots of great stuff to see there so be sure to give him a follow if you want to stay up to date with all things Studio Break, head on over to studiobreak.com or David Linaway, and you will be asked to subscribe to our newsletter. You can also find Studio Break on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, slash X. So all those links are available there, and we love hearing from listeners on Instagram. So be sure to hit us up at studio underscore break, especially if you enjoyed today's episode. Likewise, be sure to check out our archive over hundreds of episodes so there's plenty of great stuff for listening while you're working away in the studio great thoughts to fill your head to expand your ideas you can find us on spotify i really like going there because it previews some of the artwork as well but you can also listen on apple or wherever you get your podcasts and of course if you enjoyed it please rate it it does help us out and it earns you some karma points Another benefit of subscribing is you find out about some of our opportunities to show. We will be having our professional competition that will include podcast winners, various exhibitions. This year, our juror is Jeff Stevenson, and that competition will open up around October, so be sure to keep your eyes peeled. Music for today's episode is by Golden Shadow with members of the decals. Golden Shadow formed during the pandemic and includes myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. 
You can listen to our EP by following the link in our link tree. And of course, we're working on more stuff. Please be sure to follow us at Golden Shadow Band. And of course, check out Ben's work. You can check it out on Instagram at mbencohanstudio. You can listen to some of the albums that Brett Beery has produced, including the decals at Brett Beery on Instagram. And of course, if you want to see some of my stuff, it's all integrated right into Studio Break, so you don't have to go far. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter X. Facebook, and of course, Instagram at David Linaway. So be sure to do that. Say hello. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, give us a shout out at studio underscore break. And obviously, it's a great time of the year as fall approaches. I hope you are crushing it in the studio, staying healthy, staying productive. We'll talk to you real soon. <laughs>